I love getting around people who are better than me, who motivate me to be a better me. What about you? I love, I really love getting around people who are better than me, who motivate me to be a better me. Luckily, some of you know her. She's a mom in our midst. She, on October 5th, completed her first marathon. Come on. Is she here? Where is she? There she is. Hi, Kate. Right in front of the sound table. And she relayed to us what that was like. That in, I think, somewhere in New Hampshire, kind of central New Hampshire, where she did the marathon, she came on the scene as a first-time marathoner. And to have people around her who, as she said, literally had done 60, 80, even their 100th marathon, and their willingness to hear her story. And as she ran the marathon, mile after mile, different ones of them encouraging her, saying, Kate, you can do it. Come on, let's go. This is wonderful. Let's keep doing it. Go to the end, right? And even in that last mile, having people who could encourage her by name, right? Kate, you can do it. And I just think, isn't that what we all long for in kind of various sectors of our lives? In our professional lives, we long. Who's there to help us motivate us to be better versions of ourselves because they're really good at it? In our marriages or in our relationships, who's there to motivate us to get us to be the better versions of ourselves we long to be? And of course, in our spiritual life, in our life with God, who is there to help us become the better versions of ourselves that God is calling us to? Well, it's exactly what the Apostle Paul is about to do with us today. He's reaching back from 2,000 years ago from a prison cell through a letter that he's written to several churches. It's actually a circular letter. He intended it for several churches, including the one that he had helped plant in Ephesus to hear. And he's reaching back and he's saying, hey, guys. I want to motivate you today. I want to motivate you to be a better version of yourselves. And this is how I'm going to do it. And help us do that this morning. Brian Carlson is one of our A-team, our advisory team, which is our elders. He's just going to read this scripture over us. So why don't you just receive uh, this from uh, Paul, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. We'll see it on the screen as well. Oh, let's get you a mic. Although you can cry it out. That would be awesome. Powerful. Watch out. Brian can yell. He's a math teacher. He knows how to. Get it done. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Thank you, Brian. So, I urge you, as a prisoner of the Lord, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of this calling that I've been describing in the first three chapters. I want to try to illustrate for you the import of who it is that is saying this and kind of the weight that he carries as he says this. And the best way I knew how to do it is to relay to you something that just happened to me this week. And I had a sad moment this week because I learned that probably my favorite military hero, here we are coming to Veterans Day, just passed away this last summer, and I didn't know that. His name is Colonel George E. Bud Day. He is a Medal of Honor winner. 
And he was in Vietnam as a fighter pilot. He found himself over Vietnam at 43 years old, was shot down, survived, uh, landing without a chute, was captured by the enemy, managed to escape that first run-in with the enemy, uh, was entered the DMZ, the demilitary uh, zone, could see and hear U.S. Marines nearby, but then got recaptured by the enemy. And he spent time, he was the roommate, if you will, of now Senator John McCain as they both spent their time in the Hanoi Hilton, that is that prisoner of war camp. And Bud Day is such a special guy because while others in that situation capitulated, others under the duress of torture, and man, man was he tortured. I mean, his, he did not have use of his arm after because of the extent of the torture. But though other people capitulated, he did not. Because after the Korean conflict, the U.S. military came up with a certain creed that, that the soldiers had to recite. And I can't remember it, but it, just was, it had to do with the fact that we wouldn't give away the secrets of our country. We would be kind of true to the end. And so Bud Day, Colonel Bud Day, was among those who resisted everything that came his way. Thankfully, he was returned to his wife and to his kids. I can't remember it was three to five years later. But the point is that Colonel Bud Day was and still is the most highly decorated U.S. Air Force officer ever. And so his biographer, a guy named Robert Corum, tells the story of what it was like to accompany him as he went to address a room full of fighter pilots. Now, you know fighter pilots. Fighter pilots, there's a certain uh, uh, trait that gets someone to be a fighter pilot. And so some desk jockey colonel could come up and say, hey, guys, you need to persevere to the end. But when Colonel Bud Day comes up and addresses this crowd who survived the Hanoi Hilton, who has his Medal of Honor, his Air Force Cross, the highest award that the Air Force gives underneath the Medal of Honor, and all of his other decorations. Again, the most highly decorated man. And when he says, hey, fighter pilots, you need to persevere. You need to have integrity. There's weight and there's import. Is there not? And so it is when the Apostle Paul who he's put his life on the line. He's writing from a prison cell. So when he says, I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord to live a life worthy of this calling, of this Jesus thing, it's like when Colonel Bud Day stepped into the room of Air Force pilots and shared. That's the weight of what's going on here. Again, Paul, reaching from 2,000 years ago, calling us to be better versions of ourselves, calling us to walk fully in the calling we have received. I love getting around people who do that. You know, we have several Gordon students here, I think. Are you there? There we go. And I understand that there's an experience that you have, and that experience is uh, involved with something called Levita. And you have different, this is an outdoor education part of your, your experience. And um, I realized that one option is that you go to uh, the Adirondacks for a few days. Well, one of our sophomores here, Joel Cox, tells of a time that his Sherpa, a guy by the name of Dan, was really someone who brought him to a better version of himself, who really called him to live a life worthy of this kind of Adirondack adventure. And it happened like this. You know, the team, this whole thing is designed for the, the team of, of students to kind of go through the hard stuff together. And as Joel explains it, they were, you know, it was a tiring day. Uh, you know, maybe people starting a little whining and complaining here and there. But then his Sherpa kind of starts to observe the vista that is before them as they're up in the Adirondacks in upstate New York. And the Sherpa, his name is Dan, he says, the reason, let me, let me kind of explain to you the symphony of this beauty that we have here. The sunlight is doing this. 
It's this time of year in the summer. The trees are in this condition. We're at this angle. The clouds are like this. And Dane was able to explain kind of this is why this vista is so beautiful. And as Joel explains it, he says, that just brought me up and out of myself. It brought our team out of our own frustration, and it brought us up into this experience, really calling them to the, to the, the worthiness of this experience. And Paul does the same thing with us today. So how does he do it? How does Paul call us? How does this apostle Paul, how does he call us to living a life worthy of this calling? And a little uh, remark on the word calling. Remember that I know in our 21st century Western lens, we often, as soon as we hear calling, we think of my vocation, right? I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm, I'm a housewife. I'm a financial analyst. I'm this, that. I'm a dentist, right? But really, this word here is way bigger. Paul is talking about the calling that he's already illustrated in the first three chapters of we're called to be the people of God that reflect his glory in a wonderful way. So just keep that in mind. So what he does first is he calls our attitude, okay? Everyone say attitude. He says, hey, we got to look at some character stuff here. If, I, if you're going to live a life worthy of this calling, if I can motivate you to be a better version of yourself, we're going to look at attitude first, your character. And this is what he says. He says in verse 2, and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. I had it inside me. It feels good. All right. Be completely humble. Be completely gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Wow, I love looking at these words because they're so rich. Now, I know, especially for some of the men in here, we look at this verse and we may think, can there be a more sissy verse in the Bible, right? But I want to call your attention to the fact that walking in this truth, and let's keep it up there, walking in this truth is actually a, a work of great emotional effort. And the writer of Proverbs mentions it. Proverbs 16.32 says, Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. So as we look at these words, it calls us all to a great exercise of emotional fortitude. Let's talk about being humble or humility. For sure, humility indicates a sense of of, um, moral littleness or the fact that, man, I need help growing up in this, that, or the other. But the problem is we lapse into false humility when we kind of say, oh, woe is me, little me, little, you know, I'm, I'm just this, I'm not, I'm not that, whatever. That's not really humility. I love what Jamie Lash, professor at DBU, Dallas Baptist said, and he was here with us a, a year or so ago. And he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but humility is thinking of yourself less. It's just a matter of focus, not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. And truly humble people have a great, secure sense of self. They're strong, and out of that humility, they're able to consider others first. We have that model in Jesus. Another letter that Paul wrote, the one that's right after this one in your Bible, Philippians 2, he said, hey, you want to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And he said, you want to be completely humble, like Jesus, because Jesus humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus wasn't, oh, woe is me, when he went to the cross. Jesus was, my focus is on my Father and on the people that need a rescue. And that's humility. I see humility in a lot of the people around me. I'm just going to call out one today, and that's Keith Crass. He's sitting here in front of me. Keith is also on our A team. He's an elder. And when I think of someone who's got a secure sense of self and out of a sense of strength, whenever you're around him, he's always rooting for the people around him. That's humility. His focus is, I want others to become all that God has called them to be. 
I feel it every time around him, and I watch him do it with other people. He's always for the underdog. He's always for people to become who they are. That's humility. It's not a sissy word. It's very much a strength word. And focus on God and on others. Amen? Be completely humble. Be completely, excuse me, be completely gentle, he says. Gentle. Don't we all long for gentleness? When you show up at the Registry of Motor Vehicles in Massachusetts, <laughs> you're praying, Oh, God, I've waited for 45 minutes here. If I don't have every document that I need, may this agent be merciful to me and gentle, right? Speaking of some other humble people around here, Josh Booth, who just gave you this announcement, Jim Miriam, and let me tell you how they're um, guys who are better than me. What I appreciate about Josh Booth is, Josh Booth, he, is, he solves a problem. He perseveres in solving problems. What I appreciate about Jim is, Jim loves his family. He sacrifices and has a lot of integrity so his family can be loved. I want to tell you about the three, the three of us were in Vermont. And, you know, it's the only time in my life that the super trooper, the Vermont trooper, was ahead of us. And we actually got pulled over from him being ahead of us. He was ahead of us. He turns on his lights, gets behind us, and pulls us over. And again, I'm telling you, and, you know, I'm telling Josh, 10 and 2, you know, just put your hands on the wheel. Because if they see motion, they think that, you know, you're pulling a gun or something. Or, you know, and of course... I'm serious. It's just good advice for you. If you get pulled over, just stay still. Don't reach in the glove box for your registration. Wait. So Super Trooper comes up. Of course, he takes like an incredible amount of time to come to the car, just playing the drama to the max. And, but here's my point. <laughs> there actually is a point. The point is, in that moment, we're all thinking, please, God, let the trooper be gentle with us. Please let him not be harsh. He was a little bit of both, wasn't he? <laughs> he? Honestly, I mean, getting pulled over from in front, he thought we were tailing him. It was just ridiculous. All right, so <laughs> the point is, right, we want a gentle answer. We don't want harsh. We want gentle. When you confess something to your spouse, you know, those of you who are married or in your close relationship with your friends, your, your roommates, when you're kind of telling someone a deep dark, one of the, one of the unhighlights of your soul, you just say, oh, gosh, please let them be gentle. And gentleness, like humility, is also a sign of great strength. In fact, David, King David in Psalm 18, he really shares a great thing about this. He says this. He is sharing kind of how God really rescued him from Saul. David was not quite king yet. He was running from Saul, who was the king, who really probably had some mental health issues. And David describes uh, how incredible this rescue was by God. That, hey, God, you rent the heavens, the mountains were smoking. You know, it's hard to tell exactly what happened. But there's this big picture rescue. And then in verse 35 of Psalm 18, David throws this in. He says, you know what, God? Your gentleness makes me great. The NIV translation misses it. It says your help makes me great. But the word in Hebrew is really gentleness, humility, meekness. Your humility makes me great. And so it is. We long to be gentle because it's powerful when we restrain ourselves so that others are dealt with well. Amen? All right. So we got humility, gentleness, and now we've got be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I want to give you a little illustration of what the Greek looks like for the bearing one another. So Jeremy, come on up. Jeremy's got a friend who's going to help him. All right. Who we got? Zach. All right. Here we go. Bearing with one another in love. And you just think of the relationships that you walk with over the long haul. Think of your spouses. Think of your roommates. Think of your staff or the colleagues who know you really well. 
the word for bearing up under, right, being patient and bearing up under looks like this. So I'm going to make Jeremy play a little king of the hill here. Zach's job is just to stay on that stage. Jeremy, you try to get him off. There you go. <laughs> and one more try. There we go. Okay, good. All right, there we go. Now wait, wait one second. There, oh, there you go. <laughs> there it is. All right. <laughs> so the bearing up. If you notice, we, what happens is when Jeremy's trying to push Zach off the stage, Zach tightens so that he can bear up under it. That's exactly what the Greek indicates, is that we bear up under it, we stiffen up so that we can kind of deal with it over the long haul. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. But it's that, in the committed relationships that you're in, it's that kind, of, that kind of patience that's required, that you bear up under it. Because here's the thing, and I'm thinking about right now I've got the church staff in mind. We, oh man, I'm just so thankful. We've been walking together for five, six, seven years. The thing is, when you walk closely together with other people, you know where do they go when they stress out, right? John knows if I'm under stress, he knows where I go. Um, Sarah knows where I go. I know where Sarah goes. I know where John, we know where each other goes. When we're stressing, we know the typically broken, unholy responses that we have under stress. But this verse says that our job is to be patient on the journey together. I know that John's getting transformed by the grace of God. Sarah knows that Neil is getting transformed slowly by the grace of God, little by little, walking towards maturity. But in order for us to do it and for us to keep going together, We've got to bear with one another in love. There's the broken, hurt places of our personalities, right? Our personalities have been affected by the fall. And for us to make it over the long haul, we have to agree we are going to, on the journey together, bear with one another in love. Because we're not all instantly made better. We're on a journey till the end. Amen? All right, everyone say attitude. All right, so Paul's calling us to a better self, to this being worthy of this calling by our attitudes. The next thing he's going to address is our action. Everyone say action. And he says this, one verse, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. The action that's required by us as a group of people walking together is we need to make every effort to maintain, to keep, to preserve the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Is this just some religious language or is there some meat to this? There is meat, I believe. And I guess a couple of observations about this verse. So as you know, people tend to conflict. We tend towards conflict. But I think what I'd like to share is what I noticed from this verse is the unity of the Spirit is already a reality, like it's already in place. In other words, the Holy Spirit is in unity with the other members of the Trinity, Father and Son. There's a unity that pre-exists our chaos, our conflict, our problem. So for me, that's really encouraging because let's say, you know, we're having a little conflict in the body. I can say, you know what? Thank God that there's some unity that already there is already there, and we just need to kind of get ourselves in that flow. It just takes some of the pressure off, actually. The other observation I'd have is the man who wrote this verse. And um, Paul, this apostle, this church planter, pastor, theologian, 2,000 years ago, this man was, again, not a sissy, or he was not afraid of a conflict. Paul had some very strong opinions about things. And in fact, in the very first council of the church, right, we have it recorded in the New Testament book of Acts that happened in Jerusalem. The first big problem that the church worldwide encountered was how Jewish do people need to become in order to follow Jesus? And Paul had a strong opinion saying they don't have to be Jewish. 
because otherwise the cross of Christ and its work is nullified. Now, that was hard for some people to swallow back then, and so it had a great conflict. My point, though, is this, is that Paul had a very strong opinion about something, but yet he knew that a very important ideal, intention, right? Doctrine's got to be pure, but at the same time, he knew that preserving the unity of the Spirit was key. Amen? And that's a tension we all got to walk in. I mean, the church today in, in, in the year 2000s is trying to figure out some of those same problems. And we need to somehow be aware that we want to keep the unity of the Spirit, even as we're wrestling through what doctrine looks like for us and what it means to walk in purity. John and I, just a few weeks ago, some of you know this because of Instagram and the wonders of social media, but John and I were at a pastor appreciation lunch at CBD, Christian Book Distributors, right here in Peabody, Mass. Tim Keller was there. And so we were sitting around a table, a bunch of pastors. What a fun group that is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> anyways, John, John was in conversation with a pastor from Boston. And then there's a pastor from Rhode Island kind of across the table. We had a quick exchange. You know, he, he prompted me, you know, what's your deal? And I, I explained to him our church, you know, and I, you know, hey, if you want to put some labels on us, we're charismatic, evangelical, Protestant, you know. Uh, but especially in the care, he, I think he prompted me with another question, like, oh, tell me about the charismatic part. I said, well, you know, we really believe all the gifts and fruit of the Spirit, like as it's recorded in the Bible. I knew where he was coming from. I said, as it says in the Bible, um, you know, we just believe in all the gifts and working of the Spirit. He looked at me and he said, I'm the complete opposite of you. And I looked closer at his name tag and I was like, oh, yeah, it's a fundamentalist Baptist church. I said, okay, so there's this, there's this second of awkwardness. And I think in my mind, I'm thinking of him, you know, rigid, uh, dead, <laughs> um, you know, um, uh, uh, et cetera, right? And he's probably thinking, you know, libertine, um, destroying the body because of excessive liberty and things like that, or misreading the word, all that. But what came out of my mouth, and the point here isn't how amazing your pastor is, but um, the point is, I just said, hey, I'm so glad we just both followed Jesus. He said, I am too. Boom. In that moment, I think what we both knew at that moment, besides the fact that the program was starting again, was that we need to just make every effort to preserve the unity of the body through the bond of peace. Bond of peace, by the way, the word there, bond, is, is uh, similar to the word that means ligament. So just as a ligament holds two different bones together, so it's our job to hold the bones together, right? We're a body, different flavors, different things, but we hold each other together, together by keeping the bond of, of peace. We, we act as ligaments. We hold on to each other even in spite of our differences. Amen? Okay, so that was action. Everyone say action. So we're becoming the better people. We are uh, um, living worthy, alive, worthy of this calling by our attitude being transformed, by our action changing, and then by our alignment with the big vision, our alignment with the big vision. Everyone say alignment. Okay, so Paul then kind of goes big here. He says, hey, remember, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Someone cue the music. Isn't this good? This is just huge. He goes big. This verse is especially just powerful to me. I want to throw a picture up on the screen of the church that I grew up in. Because as soon as I hear this verse, I see this in my ear of an old yearbook for my church. It's not really well focused. And it's, too, I mean, because the um, quality of, 
It's just my computer. So, but that verse, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism overall. It is on the, right there is the backside of the altar of the church. But when I see that up there, I want to let you into some of the emotions that I feel. And um, they are this. We as a church, and I'm thinking about the denomination that I grew up in, especially in New England, we are not handling very well essentially what Tim Keller calls the religious pluralism objection to Christianity. In other words, Paul's saying, we can put the scripture back up there. Paul's saying there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's pretty radical. You know, that, 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 that doesn't get you friends at the, at the um, you know, North Shore Chamber of Commerce. You know, like if I show up at the North Shore Chamber of Commerce and say, hey, guys, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. How are you guys with that? You know, it doesn't fly, right? Why? Because just like then, 2,000 years ago, today, we live in a religiously pluralistic society. Back then, it was mainly Jews who would have been monotheistic. But then the Gentiles were all coming from their Greco-Roman kind of pagan God experience. Today, and I'm thinking about when I taught high school, you know, I'm just thinking about the pluralism in my class. Hinduism, Buddhism, both of which predate Christianity, right? But didn't have a lot of, you know, the, the New Testament experience didn't, there wasn't a whole lot of um, flow between uh, the, near, the ancient near Middle East, sorry, ancient Near East and the Indian subcontinent back then. So we didn't have a lot of, you know, Jesus didn't deal a lot with that. Um, I'm thinking about, obviously, the Jews. I'm thinking about um, Muslims in our class, right? Post-Christianity, 7th century AD, comes the is- Islam through Muhammad. And then, of course, what we have today is we have this very militant secularism. That's pretty new on the scene. This idea that, um, that things need to be secular. And again, it's militant. I'm looking here at Mary Ellen Siegler. Mary Ellen's own brother, uh, Pastor Medeiros, in Greece, New York, was just with the Supreme Court. Uh, he was testifying in the Supreme Court this, this week. And uh, um, um, he was called to the Supreme Court. He was testifying because what's at issue is, on this issue of militant secularism, we've got two women, one an atheist, one Jewish, who's brought, to, uh, brought the government of Greece, New York, outside of Rochester, to, the, to, to account because in some of their public meetings, they have a prayer. Now, mind you, Wiccans have prayed at this prayer. Rabbis have prayed at this prayer. It just happens that uh, Mary Ellen's brother is probably the most frequent giver of this prayer in this public place. But I'm just making a cultural observation. Isn't it interesting that nowadays we have this militant secularism where it's like we need to erase every, um, every trace of religion from a public place? It's just a new thing. I, I just want to give you perspective that it's a relatively new phenomenon at any rate. We're in a very pluralistic society. And the objection to Christianity saying this goes something like this. It goes, hey, there's all these approaches to God. There's all these ways to God. Why would you try to convert me? Why, why do I need to be converted? Or the um, objection goes like this. It says, it just makes sense that any religion, whether it's Islam or Christianity, would say it's the only way because it's pretty self-serving, isn't it? And I love, and I'm going to borrow heavy from Tim Keller, uh, this pastor from New York City. I love his response. His response is this. He says, you know what? Ethically speaking, most of the religions of the world do look the same. And to wit, we've got C.S. Lewis, who wrote his book, The uh, The Abolition of Man, in the appendix. He actually records Muslim, Islam, uh, sayings from Hinduism, Buddhism, and says, you know what? The ethics all come out the same. It really does. 
But what is markedly different about Christianity and what Paul likely had in mind when he writes this kind of thing is the way of salvation or the way that we get right with God. And every other religion, the prophet or the main person says, I'm a prophet, and here is the way to God. But you have Jesus who made some really radical claims. He said, he said um, I'm God, come to rescue you. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I've, I've been around for a while. And Jesus said, I am coming back, and I'm going to kind of evaluate things on the earth. He said some of these radical claims. And so the, the Christian way of salvation is that it's what God does, not what I do. All I do is I receive the gift that God's given me. In fact, Paul said it so eloquently, just a chapter or two before, Ephesians 2, verse 4, he said, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. So that, you know, when we come to this, so that's probably what Paul has in mind. When he's saying things like, there's one Lord, right? Let me go back. There's one body. There's one church universal of all the followers of Jesus. There's one spirit. It's the Holy Spirit of God, the Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's one Lord, one master. It's Jesus. There's one faith. It's faith in him. There's one baptism. There's one God. And now he goes into a little systematic theology explaining who God is. There's one God, and he happens to be really benevolent. He's like a father. He's pretty omniscient. He's omnipresent, um, and he's omnipotent, right? He's over all, through all, and in all. So when Paul says these things, because he's got Jesus in mind, he's got the Christian way of salvation in mind. So that's really the question. So when we're talking about alignment, we just need to say together, hey, am I aligned with this big vision? Do I re- am I really on board with, the, with the Jesus being the way that we, we get to God, that I get in right relationship with God? That's a question I'd consider, I'd ask us all to consider today, as a matter of fact. So we've got Paul. Again, reaching back from his prison cell, saying, hey, I want to encourage you, and I want to bring you to a better you, and I want to encourage you to live this life worthy of this calling of Jesus. We're going to do it by our attitude. Everyone say attitude. We're going to do it by changing some of our actions, actions, and by our alignment. Everyone say alignment. Alignment with this big vision that God has given for us. So I think the question for us today, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back. The question for us today is, which of these three areas need the most attention? Which of these three areas need the most attention? Is it the attitude? Do you find yourself lacking when it comes to humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with others in love? Does that need the most attention today? Are you, or are you aware of some conflict and we need some action of making every effort to preserve the unity of peace a unity of the spirit by the bond of peace? Or is it on this alignment one? Do you have big questions about, or do you have questions about this big vision that Paul's put out there? You know, are we jazzed about Jesus being the way that God has made for us to be in right relationship with him? That, that's the other question for us today. So, let's pray, and um, then we'll respond in worship as we typically do. Lord, we love when we're in a good spot. (laughs) We love when people who are better than us motivate us to be better versions of ourselves. And we just receive the Apostle Paul, imprisoned and likely beheaded because he did 
believe in Jesus, we hear him calling to us through the Spirit from his prison cell years ago saying, hey, you can live a life worthy of this great calling. You can change your attitudes so that you're walking in more humility, gentleness, and forbearance. You can change your actions so that you make more efforts to keep the unity of the Spirit by the bond of peace. And we hear Paul inviting us to align with the big vision that there's one Lord, one faith, one God, one baptism, one Lord over all, one Father who's in all and through all. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you even now, just check us. Think that you know us, you know our hearts. We don't have to pretend anything before you. But just check us, where are we at in these things? And do the work, Holy Spirit, that only you can do. Amen.